Welcome to App Talk with Uptick. Each week, we dive into the nitty gritty of how to grow mobile apps and games. We speak with industry experts about specific strategies, tools, and tactics they use to find success, and we keep you up to date with emerging news and trends in the ever-changing mobile app ecosystem. My name is Xander Agosta, and I'm a growth lead here at Uptick, and joining me today are my co-host, Warren Woodward, co-founder at Uptick, and our guest, Andrew Green, Senior Vice President of Operations and Growth at Stillfront Group. Awesome. Awesome. We're yeah, really excited good. to have you. It's good to be back. Yeah, you know, we, t- we took a couple weeks off the podcast. Turns out uh, Xander and I have uh, day jobs, but uh, we're really excited to kick off season two of the podcast, and we've been wanting to get Andrew on for a hot minute, so I think it's going to be a fun fun episode today. Happy to be here. Yeah, we talk about Stillfront quite a bit, so it's good to get the Stillfront side of the perspective. <laughs> you guys are always in the news. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's a good thing. I think so. Cool. So we'll just jump into Industry Insights, our first segment, where we do a deep dive on mobile industry news. Like we referenced at the top, we've taken a couple of weeks off, and so there's a few articles. We'll try and hit them all and not get too bogged down. Um, to start, I'm going with a Game of Sutra article called, uh, Netflix will break into games by offering mobile titles to subscribers at no extra cost. Um, a few pull quotes from the article, Netflix will expand into games by big baking an Apple Arcade-style service centered around mobile titles into its existing subscription tiers. Here's a quote. We we view games as another new content category for us, similar to our expansion into original films, animation, and unscripted television. Games will be included as in the members' Netflix subscription at no additional cost, similar to films and series. So this is an interesting one. It's been uh, rumored for quite a while. Um, The fact that it's included for zero additional cost is sort of an interesting value add. Uh, the obvious implication is that they're not using freemium and the freemium is a model that we're all very, very uh, familiar with. And so, you know, with Apple Arcade doing something very similar, I'm kind of, there, there's a few things. I think the Netflix side of this is interesting just because Netflix is a big uh, big player with a lot of money and they're gonna be, you know, they're pretty fierce uh, as they expand and go into new segments. But the also the thing that's sort of an interesting macro trend is the fact that there now could be a number of these mobile game services that are not freemium focused. I think that's a really interesting thing to sort of double click on is the fact that like, hey, is there enough, will there eventually be enough product in the space that are not freemium focused that is gonna actually have an impact on the freemium ecosystem? So curious to hear either of your guys' thoughts here. Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, at the at the heart of, of, of what gamers, players are looking for is great experiences. Um, and if that experience is a single player, you know, uh, journey with no microtransactions at all, um, or no IP or whatever, um, you know, then, then that's great. If it's a PVP game in which they need to buy, you know, cosmetics in order to, you know, kind of, you know, show off their personality, then they're going to want that. But like, as long as they're getting what they want out of a, out of a game, that's going to be what works. And as long as it, they, they can get access to that game through whatever the distribution point is, that's all that you really need is to have the gameplay experience that a gamer wants and for them to be able to access it alongside their friends in a way that is fun and either social or rewarding as a single player campaign. I don't think that, um, you know, that the, business model, it, you know, I think that the dominance of a business model is going to be based on what's, what is 
providing the, the experience that gamers want by and large will we'll prove out the dominance of one business model versus another, no matter what. But distribution has to be there. So, so I realized um, we have a little precedent for an experiment like this. Do you guys, did you guys track, or do you remember when Amazon, I think it's, I think it's, I'm not sure if it still exists, but when Amazon rolled out Amazon Underground? I don't, I don't remember that. I, yeah, I don't I know think what it, that is. No I, so I think it never really got traction. Um, my, my wife works for Amazon, so I, I, I you know, sometimes I'm aware of, of projects that don't get, I mean, this was a public project, but they basically rolled out on paper, what could be something similar to this, which is that, you know, there's an app called Amazon Underground. And if you're a Prime subscriber, you get, you know, un unlocked um, premium gaming experiences uh, within that app. And that's that's my biggest question for this is like, what what is the distribution system? Two things came to mind. I'm curious, like, if you guys think this will be one or the other one. One is that, you know, there could be like an, a Netflix gaming app, right? right. And you, you use that and that's your portal to play games. The other could be that these are standalone apps, um, but you have to log into them with a Netflix account. Like those are the two business models that come to mind for me. Um, with the third just being like integrating into the like existing uh, Netflix app. Now, now, yeah. What's what's really interesting is there actually is another precedent for okay. this, which is that Verizon uh, a while ago. I don't remember the name of the company, but they either acquired a company or partnered with a company called. It had, a, it had a ridiculous name. It was like E something, uh, like E gaming. Like I can't remember what it was, but, sure. but what they did was they took this portal of, of games, right? Like, like, you know, the same thing, like got a whole bunch of different games together under one login. Uh, and they made that part of the Verizon login. And basically what they did was they upsold the subscription to this portal of games via PC uh, as part of the call center dialogue. What? So they would, yeah. And apparently it was like an amazing revenue driver. And, and like, I don't know what happened to it or what the deal was, but I actually almost got a job at the company that was aggregating the games, uh, that I can't remember the name of. Um, and, um, yeah, but it was apparently doing really well. And like Verizon was just upselling people and they were just adding like 15 bucks a month to the people's cable bill so, and like, and then they get access to this portal. Wow, okay, so let me get this straight. Like you're on like a customer support call, like disputing your bill with Verizon. And then at the end, the rep is like upselling you to download Angry Birds or, you know, not obviously not that that game, but like whatever uh, partner game they're promoting. Well, it's no, it's a subscription, right? So it's like uh -huh. a Netflix subscription for gaming. Yeah, they were like, they were gotcha. like, okay. oh, by the way, for 15 bucks a month, you could get access to over uh, 1,500 games via the Verizon Gaming Game Portal. And you'd be like, wow, that's rad. And then they all of a sudden it would just show up on your bill and like you'd be able to log in and play all, the, download all these PC games. Uh, like, I, like I even think like, you know, like Assassin's Creed, Assassin's Creed was on it and stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and this is happening. Like, it's not different that different from like what the PlayStation Plus is doing and the Xbox has a competing server as Apple. Like, it when you look at this, take a step back and look at it. I mean, there's a long history now of tech, and not that long, but in long tech terms of like aggregators coming in and eating people, specifically content producers, much right. This is very much another. Uh, this could very much be another example of that. I mean, most recently this has happened. Uh, I mean, I think of Netflix in the in the movie model, right? And they're basically trying to say, hey, can we copy and paste what we've done to the studios to gaming studios? And I don't know, it's kind of it's kind of scary as someone who works in gaming. It's like, are you a will you be able to compete as a small developer 
um, with these big content or as a value of these big content um, companies, content aggregation companies, would be such that you, as an individual developer, you can't compete. That's where Stillfront comes in and gets kind of interesting is because maybe being a big company, you can't compete. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of, obviously, this isn't like a, a, a new, you know, in, in Korea um, and in Japan, there were models for subscription, you know, games for a long time. This is back in 2013, 2014. They might still have them. I, I don't know. Um, and obviously you've got Game Pass and Amazon Luna and like, you know, the, the, the concept of aggregate, aggregated value for a customer for a specific fee and for free to play to work within that in a specific way is already underway. And, um, and, and I think that, no, uh, uh, you know, this is this, a small developer can't really compete, right? They're, they're, they're a part of it, right? Like they, they're, they're the content part of the ecosystem and, and there's economics that are different than the traditional like storefront economics, right? Um, and and a, and a still front, you know, we can we can be a part of it as well. But what's great is we're, you know, we have so many studios, we can be a major like aggregation point for a lot of these providers. Um, or you know, have our own little you know you know mini world with, with, within it somehow. Um, but. You know, it's 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 creating a service like this is not is not an easy thing. Like to become a distributor, um, so it's you know usually you have to play to your strengths, and ours is is incredible content and incredible you know studio management. So I, I'd like to pivot here to another news article article we have, um, kind of on the topic of emerging business models in gaming. Um, so this. Pivot. <laughs> so this uh, this article is about Polygon Studio. For for those not familiar with Polygon, it's it's uh, you know in the in the blockchain world, it's essentially like a layer on top of Ethereum that allows for quicker, cheaper uh, transactions. Um, but the the headline here is that Polygon Studio is going to be offering them a hundred million to fund gaming NFT projects. So for little details here, um, Poly Polygon will extend plug and play software development kits for developers such as Ubisoft. EA, Atari, and others, enabling them to integrate blockchain attributes into non-blockchain games. The studio will leverage Polygon's 100 million treasury fund to provide investment, marketing, tech, and community support. Uh, Polygon has added a layer on popular cryptocurrency platform Ethereum to enable faster, more efficient processing. Um, this enables it to remove the gas fees associated with computing costs of blockchain transactions from NFT purchases that can consumers make. And uh, one last bit here, blockchain-enabled player economies increase the likelihood of players converting with potential resale, lowers the perceived risk of investing time and money in-game, the company said. Uh, players who spend anything in a free-to-play game have a higher engagement, retain longer, and game developers unlock additional revenue streams to support and earn royalties through secondary transactions between players. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, I've been deep in this wormhole the, the, the last few weeks, but I think uh, there, there's a couple interesting things to talk about here and would love um, uh, Andrew's perspective on this. So one is just the idea of, um, you know, adding uh, on-chain on ownership of um, in-game objects to, to something like our current mobile, mobile ecosystem. And I, I say something like, because I think there's gonna be a whole nother area of conflict of like, how do Apple, Apple and Android perceive um, this kind of economy layering on top of their economy? And then just would also like your take, Andrew, if you see gaming and NFTs as something that's really part of the future, if you see it as just like the latest Ponzi in the crypto world, if this is like a space you're watching. So why, why don't we start there? Just like, how are you tracking the game if, gaming NFT space in general? And is this, is this something that, that interests you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has to take uh, like NFT gaming or, or blockchain gaming, you know, seriously. Um, I think it's it's uh, a fundamental shift in, you know, the way that developers build communities, uh, that they the way they drive retention. Um, and I think it's um, pretty incredible the way that gameplay can change around kind of smart contracts. I think the base, you know, concept behind how they work, but eventually where they will go in the future will, I think, change what we see, like, in terms of gameplay in general, because of um, having, like, immutable contracts, so that, like, essentially gameplay ownership, even gameplay logic on chain can allow things like, um, you know, I have a city, right, in SimCity that I'm the mayor of, and you can be providing power to me, right, mm -hmm. and, like, there, that's like something that like you could do gamified right now, but it could actually be in a real economy in the future leveraging, um, you know, uh, blockchain. So like that's that's just incredible, and we're at the be the beginning stages of it right now. Um, and uh, but 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 we do see the power of it. We're very excited about it at Stillfront. I'm very excited about it um, in general. I actually almost started a. A blockchain gaming startup uh, back in 2017 and decided to do something else. Um, and so I've been obviously a fan of the space for a long time and happy to dive into any of the aspects of it that, that you know, are interesting or, you know, talk more about it. Xander, let's go to you. What, what do you think about the idea that um, ownable objects outside of the game actually would increase uh, player propensity for purchase. Like if you actually own something that's outside of, of, of the gaming ecosystem itself that you can buy, sell, and trade, do you think that that's something that will drive a, like, will this appeal uh, outside of like the you know, niche, like hardcore crypto people? Do you see this something like working in the IAP gaming space a lot that 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 is actually going to drive up ARPU for games? Or are you skeptical that this is relevant to the average person? I mean, I think it seems... Absolutely, yes, you'd think. Uh, you know, like just taking a step back and just thinking sort of like at an abstract level, it seems like, you know, telling someone you're buying something tangible as opposed to something that's going to disappear seems like it'll sell better. It's actually worked on me in the past is there was um, some stupid like Monopoly crypto game for the mobile, mobile game um, that I was playing and I bought like some Monopoly property to be like, oh, it's going to appreciate in value. But uh, I mean, who knows if it will. That one you can't even actually take out of the game. Um, that being said, I mean, this seems like it makes a lot of sense in the long term, uh, you know, Collectibles have worked forever. I mean, someone who plays a lot of Magic Warren, I think you can understand the value of having something tangible that feels like ownership that also has a function in the game. Um, Mike's, my question is sort of like, okay, you own it outside the game. In what sense is that actually useful in any meaningful way? And that's the piece that sort of gets me. It's like, how much of this can be done with op open markets in a gaming ecosystem versus how much of this is actually generating incremental value to a user outside the game, and like, what what is the actual value that you're being that is being generated outside the game? I guess my counter argument would be uh, that same that same um, argument could be applied to anything in the crypto space in general, right? Um, and if you compare the functionality of um, Bitcoin, what, what does Bitcoin really do other than exist in a, like mathematically quantifiable way as far as like how that existence grows? It really just exists. It's being immutable. That's like its core function, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I would uh, my counter argument would be applying any sort of uh, real world functionality 
or I say real world, but, but any sort of like actual use case other than being something that can exist and track, uh, I think is opening up a whole nother realm of value. And if we've allowed ourselves to um, allocate value to simply, you know, something such as Bitcoin, then uh, having trackable items that you can use in different, uh, in different virtual worlds, I think the, the value proposition for that is actually more, more digestible than the value proposition for something like Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think you're probably right. I think people are probably going to, you know, j jump at this. And uh, the question remains whether or not it's going to be like a, a bubble or not. Are people are just doing this because it's the hot new thing or if it's because it's actually adding value. I mean, I think as, as you know, as we've seen in the past, like the, the crypto economy and overall kind of like blockchain economy comes in waves. Like it, there will definitely be a downturn in this, in the heat of the overall like economy on NFTs, on, you know, crypto projects, but it's just going to mean that it's just going to gear up for its next big, you know, kind of, you know, push and its next big generation of where it will come with new tech, new players, new scale. Um, I, it doesn't ever go away. The community just keeps building and, and like, you know, acquiring new, new fanatics while it's in its like, you know, colder period. And then, you know, pops back up. And I think the same thing is going to happen here. And, but I, I just think that if, as you said, like if you extrapolate all the dynamics of what is happening, the value is, is there uh, like, and, and the infrastructure is there for, for the long term. It's just going to take a very long time to get everything to work appropriately, everyone to adopt it appropriately and for the ecosystem to kind of like manage itself and the dynamics of it. And for all of that to kind of settle appropriately but you know as far as business models goes it's definitely going to change a lot of how you know like i one other thing that, that we didn't really talk about was like um you know as an investor like which which i'm not uh uh you know like i mean i you know do, do a deal here or there like you know but um but thinking about the investment community right how did they look at a at one you know, blockchain gaming or NFT gaming project versus another, right? Like what, what metrics are they looking at, right? Because they don't behave this, the way that a, a, a traditional game does. They don't get traction the way a traditional game does. I think that's more interesting for now. That's a more interesting conversation now is how, the, how do you create an understanding of early stage dif differentiation or team differentiation or project differentiation how is one stronger than another? Is it more about the community dynamics and the like ferocity of the community building? It's not about like traditional growth. It's really interesting and different. Yeah, and there, there is a pretty compelling economic argument for this, which is that you can take a cut of every traded NFT as, as the producer, right? And that's something that, right? That's how these work, right? More is that not? Uh, that's that's an option. I mean, there's a, there's a lot you can do with the space. Right. So, but what I mean is like as a, as a publisher or as a developer, that's a really, really compelling. If you can make a game where it's really compelling to trade a lot and you're able to make money out of each one of those transactions, that seems like a pretty freaking good business model. I mean, that's, and that's what Axie is doing currently, right? Axie Infinity, which is like probably the biggest name in the space, you know, they, they take a cut on breeds and on um, overall, uh, transaction value, which is at like, I think it's 4% or around there, four point. 5% and then they take a very small cut of breeding fees and it's it's a tremendous amount of, of revenue even with a relatively small you know DAU base 
you know, if you looked at their DAU, it's it's like a fine DAU base, but it's not like a insane one. And the rev the retention is off the charts, and the you know, and the revenue is just like is just growing, and the overall value of the ecosystem is growing. So spoiler that you, you you spoiled my app of the week actually, Andrew. So I'd love to come back to that near the end of the podcast. Um, uh, when we get to when we get to our apps of the week, why don't why don't for now yeah. just for time's sake, why, why don't we go to some of the other news? Yeah, we're just going to kind of move through this kind of quickly because we want to get to our interview. We've got a, a lot of interesting things to talk about there. So uh, I know you're going to be a little timid on this one, Andrew. But the next article is Jam City ends SPAC deal that would that would have made 1.5 or sorry 1.2 billion dollar firm, the mobile game studio Jam City called off its plan to go public via SPAC with DPMC Capital, which would have valued the company at 1.2 billion. They are citing market conditions. Um, as part of the deal, uh, Jam City was aiming to acquire Ludia Games for one point, uh, sorry, 175 million, and they're allegedly still looking to do the deal, but are vetting other funding sources. Um, so this is really interesting. Uh, I know Andrew probably has some opinions that you got to be careful talking around, but you know, it, it certainly seems like it's a cooling of the SPAC market, which has been pretty hot over the previous years. When you look at sort of the tech companies that went public via uh, sorry, the gaming companies and gaming tech companies that went public via SPAC or IPO the last over the last year or so. I was counting Iron Source, Applevin, Playtica, Roblox. I might have missed a few other ones, but they all they all, those all went uh, IPO or SPAC, and only Roblox is up from its IPO price. So I think this is just sort of indicative of you know maybe the cooling market conditions. Uh, I'm curious if either of you guys have any thoughts here. My my high level thoughts are just that like nothing specific to the deal itself or to Jam City or to you know the you know the folks that uh, were taking them you know public via the SPAC um, more just that the you know there's obvious new market conditions and new market headwinds that everyone is dealing with uh, in terms of ATT you know new signal era you know it, it's. I think for everyone, the, the way that that people are forecasting and understanding how their businesses are flowing is just is just different. I wouldn't even say it's necessarily like not amazing opportunities on the horizon. It's just different, and people are are in a learning phase. So like that's going to have an impact if you have a very specific narrative that you're talking to investors about, right? Um, and and that that's what I would say. Maybe could have maybe you know might might have played a part of this, but I, I have no I no idea. And, and, you know, um, but that would be my, you know, something to think about in, in terms of, of why this might've transpired. At the very least, there's less certainty, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Warren, do you have thoughts here? Yeah, I guess my, my view is a little more like I'm a little further removed from, from, you know, the, 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 this, the, the capital, the capital world and, and deals like this. Um, but my, my gut reaction here is like, there was a frothy market um, everyone who could scrambled to take advantage of it, and uh, Jam City and the SPAC didn't didn't get it to to market to in time to kind of maximize that that froth. Um, you know, the I think in in there's a couple of clear headwinds here. One is just how the SPAC market has trended for the last 12 months. Um, and the other is what has happened to the mobile industry. I think Andrew alluded to this, but just the amount of uncertainty, like, you know, the, the, the timing of the SPAC froth also overlapped with the door slamming shut for, uh, you know, Apple and, and, and ATT. And so I think those are two clear, clear headwinds. Um, it, what I am skeptical of is if in the near future, there's going to be another really optimal time for Jam City. But again, I don't feel like I'm close enough to um, either of the organizations in this case to you know, have a really informed opinion. 
Well, speaking of Apple. Oh yeah. So here's 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 a quick one, a uh, fun one. So uh, you know, Apple just had their their uh, earnings call. Uh, so the headline here is Apple warns that growth will slow after record-setting sales. I wonder why. So the company had uh, the company said on a conference call Tuesday that supply constraints will affect the iPhone and iPad in the current quarter. Decelerating demand for services also will drive the slowdown. Q2 services revenue reached 17.5 billion above the 16.3 billion estimate and a third higher than the same period last year. The business is heavily reliant on sales from in-app purchases and third-party app downloads and Apple recently decreased the cut it takes from most apps from 15% to 30%. Uh, the company has launched a slew of new services in recent years including Apple TV Plus, Apple Arcade, but it hasn't said how those are performing. So, Andrew, Xander, can you think of any reason why services revenue from uh, from the App Store and other Apple services might be down in upcoming quarters? <laughs> well, I, I, mean, I have an idea. It might be because people aren't spending as much on advertising in iOS. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's when you make it very hard for people to, you know, value scale, right? Like, uh, then you will not see as much value. Um, so until those people figure out how to, you know, continue to scale value. Um, so I, I think that that could, could be a part of it for sure. Um, you know, but I do think that like supply constraints are real. And I think that like growth forever uh, is also like a really difficult, like, I mean, the scale they're already at is insane. And like, there are so many incredibly massive global resource and, and uh, you know, kind of demographic shifts occurring in consumption right now that like, it's just, you know, I mean, look at like, I mean, a great, a great example is just like PlayStation 5's inability to get enough semiconductors that they're thinking about changing the way that the hardware is actually built. Um, like if you can't, if you can't get enough parts to get enough phones into enough stores and hands, you, you reduce marketing, you reduce sales, you, you know, and then, and then of course you have this, the services, you know, side of it, which is there's just not enough new growth services opportunities and they're creating other market dynamics around privacy and whatnot to head off a couple of other things in the future. I mean, it just creates, you know, a situation where they just can't continue to grow, but they they've grown so much that of course they're has to be the time and it's the place where maybe growth isn't supposed to occur. Uh, you know, I'm learning a lot from my Swedish brethren here about, um, you know, not growth forever and not depleting all the resources on the planet and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe it's rubbing off on me a bit, but uh, I believe that that-, that How un-American of you. <laughs> exactly. I'm losing a little bit of that, but yeah, I think it makes sense that, that they would, that, that they would, you know, hit some some headwinds here yeah I and mean, the thing that's really interesting i just want to talk about uh, you know everyone has an iphone or in it you know you, people aren't like oh i need well some 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 geographies i guess this is not true but in most of the western world everyone has a smartphone so you know just iphone consumption sales is going to decrease over time and has been um for the services part particularly i think it's interesting so there's a couple of things here they said they they decreased the cut of most of their apps from 
30 to 15, this is a very disingenuous metric because the vast majority of the apps that are making the majority of their money for them are still getting charged 30%. It's the long tail that is not making them well, any money. That, it's, that... it's it's technically true, right? Like right, if you totally. discount the number of apps, but yeah, we, we all know that the wealth in the app industry is concentrated highly, highly at the top. And so, yeah, they're able to say they discounted the bulk of the, the number of apps while actually only a, a fraction of the overall revenue. But it's clear to me it, that the a huge set part of this decrease in value from the service sections has to do with advertisers not being able to spend accurately due to ATT. And so a lot of people are pulling out of spending money on mobile marketing on iOS, and that's directly impacting the bottom line of the services business. And so this is like the on the largest self-owned, at least from the services segment, where they're just shooting themselves in the foot to say, hey, you know, we it's important you got to protect computer, consumer privacy, but you're completely discounting the value that the advertising industry is bringing to their business. And that, I mean, rant off, but no, I think I think that's absolutely true, Xander. You, you, I think you correctly call this as a as a massive self-owned. Um, I have it on good authority that um, only somewhat recently is uh, Apple starting to take seriously the data of, of uh, you know, starting to see the data and see the, uh, see the effect that preventing the, our, our industry of, of mobile, mobile growth marketing, basically cutting that arm off in a massive way, that that's going to have a material impact. I think there was a, sort of a a bit of ignorance on Apple's part of what percentage of the overall user base for the, the, the app ecosystem was coming from third parties rather than people just um, believing that the app store is a wonderful place and let me go explore and see what I can find there today. So now they're starting to see those repercussions. And um, you know, I, I do think Andrew's call about supply chain is that that is real, um, but I do think that, that, uh, that there was a largely preventable part of this uh, as well. Awesome. Shall we uh, shall we pivot and get to know Andrew a bit here? Let's do it. Cool. So I'm calling this still front in the era of me mega publishers. All right. So just to, <laughs> just to get started, uh, Andrew, will you tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your background, and then from that segue into uh, what still front is and what you do there? Sure. Um, well, I've uh, I've been in games my my whole career pretty much, except for a year in film. Um, I uh, I never went to college. Uh, I started a startup instead when I was like 18. We raised a bunch of money, which was really weird to be 18 and to be given money for a dot-com startup. Uh, it, it failed. Um, and um, we almost sold it actually uh, to the company that eventually became MySpace, uh, which is really weird. Is uh, or eventually made MySpace, which is really weird. Um, and uh, yeah, but but it, it, that transaction to go through. And then I was just like, I want to work in games. And um I saw a job at Take-Two Interactive and I, I, I just called the CEO and left a voicemail on his machine that I, apparently was insane. Um, and he told, he sent that message around to everyone and they all laughed about it. And uh, they interviewed me and I got a job as a product manager. Uh, you know, and this is like PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, Xbox. Um, and then I just kept working in marketing and product management from there, uh, you know, at Atari. At electronic arts, uh, eventually wanted to get into free to play, um, and there really wasn't, you know, free to play at EA yet, um, and um, you know, except for except for Playfish, which was which was a great acquisition, um, but they didn't know how to integrate it. EA was never, you know, in the past great at integrating acquisitions. So I, I left. I went to um, an awesome company called Lalaps, uh, who was on. If they made Facebook games, a really big game called Ravenwood Fair. 
um, and then um, uh, joined TinyCo. Uh, I ran operations at TinyCo and uh, and business development and um, worked with you know the CEO there um, and uh, you know the the VP of uh, product and operations. Um, so this, you know Suli Ali and, and James Boyle. And, um, you know, we made some amazing games, uh, Family Guy, The Quest for Stuff, and, um, you know, eventually Harry Potter, Hogwarts Mystery. Uh, we eventually sold the, uh, the, the company to uh, Jam City. Um, and then I, I, I was a co-founder in another games company called Knock Knock, which uh, was doing like frictionless uh, games in HTML5. Um, I joined Andreessen Horowitz eventually, uh, you know, as kind of helping get the games stuff going and be part of like uh, consumer business development uh, there and, uh, and joined uh, Stillfront about four months ago um, as a senior vice president of operations and growth. So uh, that's my long winded spiel on my career. But, um, you know, it's been a it's been a crazy ride and I've seen a lot of weird stuff. Quite a whirlwind. Um, I don't know if everyone in our audience is necessarily going to know who Stillfront Group is. I mean, obviously, Warren and I do pretty well. But um, can you just talk a little bit about what Stillfront is and then, you know, what sort of your high-level strategy is for the company and then also uh, what your role is there? Yeah, for sure. So, so Stillfront is a, you know, public company um, on the NASDAQ um, and is um, essentially a, a distributed um, operator and publisher of games. Um, across a variety of platforms, primarily mobile as well as uh, PC. And uh, there's 19 studios that are in the overall group. And um, as part of kind of our, you know, we have a real, a real studio first, um, you know, approach to our operations. And that puts, um, you know, the, the kind of distributed nature of our operations, uh, you know, at, at the forefront where it's really studio led, but we are building and creating, you know, a lot of different infrastructure, both technical and operational to ensure like maximum efficiency while making sure that autonomy and speed are, you know, kind of kept at the forefront. Because I think a lot of us, uh, both at the studio level or even in the operations side, you know, we've all been operators. We've all either you know, ran studios or been part of studios, and we all saw what central operations uh, can do. And we really want to see if we can build like the next generation of scale, you know, uh, studio and, and publishing operations without creating centralized, you know, fully centralized group. Interesting. So, so Andrew, you what, why do you guys exist? So like, why, why do you think, why do you think over recent years we've seen this trend? Uh, like, I don't know if this term is common, but we, we refer to, you know, use the term of mega publishers. Why has this been a model that's come a little bit more to prominence in recent years? Why do we think power of um, entities like Stillfront Group and Bracer Group is growing in recent years? Like, why is this the time um, that an organization like Stillfront is, is thriving? What's, and kind of like, what's the role that, 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 uh, a still front or a similar org plays in the ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think still front exists first and foremost, because, you know, the, the team there over, you know, they love games and, and over time they, you know, wanted to create an organization that supported great game teams and build a business out of that. Right. And, and they just had success. And what's amazing is the more stories I hear from the teams um, that are part of Stillfront Group, especially the ones that were early on, it was very, you know, like organic. They were like, 
you know, like, like we have a team um, in Malta called Dorado um, and Dorado Games, and they're, um, you know, led by, um, you know, uh, Sky Simon, who, who, you know, was, was, was part of the group really early on and, and was working with Jorgen and was like, you know, uh, they, they really wanted to make this amazing um, golf game, right? And eventually they got to the point where it wasn't working out and they weren't really generating revenue. And, and they saw another studio in the group had this incredible engine on the strategy gaming side. And they were like, well, we have some ideas for features that could make this like even better. And, and Jorgen was like, yeah, you should go talk to them. That, that, that studio is called Vitro. And, uh, and then they collaborated. You, leveraging Vitro's engine, came up with a bunch of new feature ideas, new art, and launched this game, uh, you know, called uh, Conflict of Nations. Uh, it's, it's like a World War III strategy game, and boom, the game's doing really well, and then Stillfront can support it with publishing dollars at scale, right? And so that's the magic of, of, of why Stillfront specifically exists, which I think is a bit different than some of the other, um, you know, more centrally led groups where the studio teams can look within the group and, and, and find areas where they can like, you know, leverage expertise or leverage knowledge or leverage infrastructure and, and take their own, use their own ingenuity and creativity, you know, build something and then grow it and leverage the scale of Stillfront from a, from a financial perspective to grow the games because publishing is expensive and, uh, and, 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 and scale is necessary in order to be defensible. And that's why I still front exists. But I think we exist in a special way that can create even more opportunity even faster. So it sounds like the thesis with, I'd say still front specifically, I wouldn't say this is one in the same with, um, you know, other, other quote unquote mega publishers. It sounds like the thesis here is give publishers or developers a large amount of autonomy, give them space to breathe and do the thing they do best. But there's a certain subset of resources that are going to be uh, much more efficient economies of scale if they're centralized. And these can both be uh, these can both be tools. These can be financial resources. But it could also be some amount of of knowledge sharing of just not being in the silo of of your studio. Is that fair to say that that's kind of the the value proposition of of Stillfront, or at least a big chunk of it? Yeah, and 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 you know the the distributed exactly, and the distributed nature of it means that we don't ever have to no one there's no center of power that's too powerful uh which i think is one of the big issues with central operations and and uh working with stu with with studios it's a very delicate balance and um you know i think we strike it really well in a way that the the culture is is just amazing and and i think that that it's hard to develop a a organization wide culture as good as ours when you have such a large central group in the middle of a bunch of teams. Cross collaboration between developers is really, really interesting, uh, interesting piece of this, because basically, you know, if those two companies did not, were not under the same umbrella, it makes no sense for them to say, hey, yeah, copy our game. That's totally fine. You know, but like, because it's all rolling up to the same PL, ultimately, it makes sense to say, okay, yeah, we should obviously collaborate. So that's a pretty cool advantage that I hadn't thought a ton about, even though we thought about it a little bit. It's, cool. it's, it's, it's hard enough to get people to align incentives when, when they aren't part of the same organization. But when, when you are like every, and again, when you have such a great culture of collaboration, everyone already comes to the table with an open mind and an open kind of spirit around the conversations. And they're really just thinking about how do we do something rad, right? Rather than like protecting themselves. And I think that's a really powerful part of our organization that 
people don't think about to get really, you know, it's not easy to collaborate on a game. Uh, and and we, we're making it happen all the time. So it's, it's pretty rad. Yeah, so you sort of touched on some of the key advantages of the mega, mega publishers. Um, I am curious to sort of, you know, steal me on the other side of this argument and say, so we talked about some of the, the pros of being, you know, the city, so we call the city state model, which is sort of centralized or decentralized. What are some of the advantages of a centralized model where you have some more, more of a command economy? Are there any advantages or is it just completely useless and it's just a bunch of suits? No, no, I think there's, I think there's advantages. I think there, you know, but, but again, like what's so funny about games is advantages could turn into disadvantages and disadvantages could turn into, it's, it's such a weird a constantly evolving beast that, um, you know, but, but I would say that by and large, I think you sacrifice uh, long-term culture and long-term, um, you know, kind of viability and, and retention of employees and creatives. But what you get when you have central organizations is you can drive a project like you, you can, manage maybe manage a portfolio a bit more like you know cohesively you can you can like tell you can tell devs what they're gonna make and what they're not gonna make right, right. and i don't i don't i don't personally like that i don't personally still front doesn't want to do that like we don't want to tell a developer what product they should be making um you know we want to be fostering their own creativity getting excited about it and then giving them the resources to to make that happen right but i would say that sometimes when you're managing a portfolio and doing the planning and everything like that there is an advantage to being able to say uh okay you can't do that project right because maybe you think that that project isn't a good idea and it's or it's too risky and maybe you can manage your risk better overall but i think it's a very short-term gain versus a long-term play that's really gonna build value in the mid and long-term where the studios are happy. They're happier, they're more creative. They feel like they have the autonomy and they feel like they have the support. And like, you know, and, and that, you know, and it's not like there is no governance, it's still front. It's just that we do that in collaboration. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a relationship. It's a partnership with the studio where if we don't think that, that there's a good idea, we don't tell them, no, you can't do that. We ask them a lot of questions and we say like, do you think this is like the best thing you could be making or is there a better opportunity? Are the risks really, you know, worth it? And if they're, if they, you know, if they're for it and everything, like we don't tell them no, you know what I mean? And, and you know what? A lot of times they're right. And like, or their passion wins out and they end up making like awesome products that do really well in the market. Uh, and I think that's really important. Yeah, I think there's there's a big difference between you know challenging someone to you know basically defend your choice of investing in this project versus saying you're not making this, you're making this instead because this is you know this is what I think uh, is going to get yeah, traction. Exactly, uh, I, I hate that because I in games I don't like when people act like they know what is going to work. Like so, you can do all the research and due diligence, and you should, but at the end of the day, it's still games. So Andrew, we, we touched a lot on sort of the benefits of giving a lot of autonomy to the studios. And I think I think that value proposition is pretty clear, but on, on the flip side of the coin, you talked about some of the cultural and collaborative benefits. What about as far as just like tooling, uh, systems, processes, what are the right things, the low hanging fruit to centralize there? Like what are the no brainers where you feel, um, and this could be stuff that you guys are doing or just you think should be done 
um, where most of the studios would be in agreement. Yes, we all benefit from centralizing this this resource, this set of tooling. Yeah, I think that um, there's a couple. You know, so so I think that every studio needs to be working on a tech stack that they are comfortable with and that they uh, think is the most productive for them, right? Uh, changing that or, or demanding that they work with some central tool set uh, that they might think sucks uh, is not a good thing uh, in, in our perspective. Um, again, there's pros and cons, right? Like to, to central operations. I mean, I, I actually worked with a central operations group at EA and I think like a quarter of the studios actually leveraged that infrastructure versus just did whatever they wanted, right? So investing in all of that, uh, is 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 you know not is probably not the best um and we don't we, we like the studios to have whatever whatever you know utilize whatever tech stack they, they think works for them but aggregating the data uh mm -hmm. that each of the studios has and ensuring that there is better uh data science and you know bi capabilities centrally to again just more shore up the overall amount of knowledge that's available and to share that knowledge across all studios, um, even if they have, you know, even though the studios have their own analytics and BI, like just making sure that everyone knows what's going on and has all the best knowledge across the whole group, that is a good investment. Um, right. You know, um, expertise on the user acquisition and ad monetization side is important. Again, we don't dictate that everyone uses a certain group's ad monetization capabilities or user acquisition capabilities, but when studios need it, or they think like, man, you know, like we really don't know what we're doing here. Like, but there's a, but there's a, a studio like Good Game Studios, you know, uh, on user acquisition or, you know, a team, you know, that, like, like um, Candy Writer that potentially knows, you know, ad monetization, um, like, they're like, oh wow, let's go talk to them. Let's see if we could collaborate with them, and um, and and more and more we 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 kind of create real uh, discipline around around those collaborations. It, it creates an amazing organization, um, you know. And and but again, dictating that everyone did use that or whatever, you know, then they they couldn't use amazing providers like uh, Uptick um, if they wanted to. So um, <laughs> thanks thanks for the the shout out, but. Yeah, I mean, it, that's definitely one thing we're thinking about. You know, we support a pretty broad variety of, of studios with the growth marketing work we do. Like we we come in prepared that we might have to do everything. Uh, but at the same time, I think part of it, and this is probably, I'm guessing some of what your conversations are too, Andrew, is just like, what what are you good at as a studio and where do you need help? And most studios will be very honest. You know, they've gotten this far. They know their strengths, they know their weaknesses. So definitely like our philosophy is like, hey, if, if a studio is great at something, just give them space and identify yeah. where you can add value and focus on, on those areas. Yeah, totally. And, and I think there's, you know, it's not a lot of people have built an organization. I, don't, I think we're the first to build really an organization like ours, right? So we're, we're excited about all the different opportunities there are to build more infrastructure and to create more collaboration and more knowledge sharing. And I think that, again, because it's such a long-term, you know, uh, you know, like it's just the, the value keeps compounding. I think eventually we'll be so far ahead of everyone in building this type of organization. It'll be really, really hard to duplicate. 
makes sense. So one last thing I wanted to touch on, um, you talked a little bit about this, about, about portfolio diversity. And I'm kind of trying to think of how, you know, because you're decentralized, how do you think about a portfolio level strategy for the Stillfront Group overall? Because because you have less, you're letting the companies have more autonomy. How do you then take all the data, look at the macro trends and say, all right, we want to expand into this segment or this segment, or we need to reinvest here. Is it through acquisition? Is it through like cultivating relationships? Like how do you actually operationalize that portfolio management? That's what's great about Stillfront also is because you can, instead of doing portfolio level management on the team level where you're telling developers what they should make, even if they don't want to, or if the talent isn't right or whatever, what you do is if you want to ensure that you are, you know, creating a good portfolio balance, you do it from the M&A side, right? right? You, and, and that's what Stillfront's done, right? They've, they've grown from, you know, not, you know, it's like strategy, simulation, RPG, and then casual, uh, casual and, and, um, you know, puzzle and mashup. And I think that, you know, they've got, you know, we've, we've got like, you know, five or six genres that were really strong and that represent like a really broad spectrum. And that's been driven through MA. So all the teams are doing what they naturally are good at and naturally excited about and understand. And so it's easy for them to choose the projects and, you know, and then we know the portfolio balance because we've created it at a studio level. Makes sense. Um, yeah. Awesome. And, um, but, but yeah, but I think, I think like, you know, diversity and content um, in general is, is something that every operator strives for. And I think that we, everyone has to get better at across the, no, no one is good at it. No, in my opinion, everyone needs to be better at it always. Um, so, so, and I hope that, you know, it continues to, to become more and more diverse. And I think, and I think it can and, and will. Awesome. Well, that's a really interesting perspective from Andrew at Stillfront Group. Um, we're going to get close to wrapping up because we're running short on time. Um, we'll move on to our section, which is App of the Week. Andrew, did you bring an app this week? Yes. So the app I bought is is called L- Luna, um, and it's spelled L-O-O with a like mark over it. Like a, I don't know. So I don't know how it's pronounced, if it's like Luna or like it's just Luna, but it's called Luna and it is a sleep app but it is a game kind of interesting it is a it is an experience they have a bunch of levels or or games and the games that that you play put you to sleep or get your mind and body ready to go to sleep but it is an interactive meditative experience and it's really weird because it does its intended purpose and gets me into like that same feeling I feel when I meditate, but it does it through interactivity and, and kind of gameplay almost. This sounds awesome. I am 100% going to download this app. <laughs> I have a lot of problems sleeping. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, honestly, if you are someone that needs to be on your phone, like at night, like this, if you use this app and play a level, I guarantee you that you will at least be like, okay, I feel definitely, definitely different after playing through that experience. That's like, that's a great recommendation. Yeah. I definitely do like a gaming wind down at the end of the day. I literally like dim the lights in the room, like dim the monitor. Cause it's like, that's what I do to relax, but it's also, it's kind of a bad habit to do right before you go to sleep. Right. But it, it, gaming is my way that I transition out of thinking about work to just turning my brain off a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And like Luna figured out a way to like, yeah, like kind of do both at once. It's really interesting experience and it's, I really like it. I've been using it uh, more and more, and it's 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 good. Awesome, Xander. What's your app this week? 
Yeah, um, my app this week is Spotify. And I know that's kind of a boring app, but I want to explain why. One, I use Spotify all the time for everything. Um, but I think there's something that's really stupid and interesting that's happened. So I listen to a lot of podcasts and I used to use the Apple Podcast app for, for everything. And they made some major upgrades to the Apple Podcast app. And I have a little bit of an older phone, like a, an iPhone 8 Plus, and the, the podcast app now does not work on my phone. Like, it, it does not function. I cannot, like, play or download podcasts in a fast and efficient way on Apple. And that's it's, it's pretty incredible that Apple, who, like, pioneered podcasting, now I literally have a couple-year-old phone and I can't use it. And so I'm forced to use Spotify to listen to podcasts. And that, I think, is, again, just the ultimate own from Apple. <laughs> I don't know how that's possible, um, but I'm curious if either of you guys have that same experience or uh, thoughts about Spotify. So, I, Xander, I have, a, I have a brand, like, newest model, pretty high-end iPhone, and basically same issue. Really? Like the the podcast app is freezing all the time. Like if I open it back up, it's just like a gray screen. It doesn't remember what podcast was playing last. So it, it's it's interesting. It's not just the older models. That's wild. I just love Spotify so much. I'm like a power user and like a fanatic of discovery. So I I will always sing the praises of Spotify and their algorithm for discovery is so much better than Pandora's. It's dis- yeah. it's it's insane. Pandora's is like has the the like intelligence of a block of cheddar cheese and like Spotify <laughs> is like like constantly giving Agreed. me incredible recommendations on obscure shit that I definitely want to be like finding. So totally, I, I'm sort of embarrassed how many good bands I've discovered just via the algorithm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Spotify is awesome. I use it all the time. Cool, Warren. Do you have an app this week? Yeah, and I, I'm glad we got to touch on it up top a little bit since we're tight on time. Um, but my app this week is this is the first is an app I've never played, and I'll explain why. And it's Axie Infinity, which Andrew mentioned up top. So Axie Infinity has been blowing up. Um, it's you know a Pokemon style game on the blockchain where you can you know own you you own the characters, you can like breed offspring and sell them as as NFTs. It's this whole nuanced economy um, in the Philippines, many people have full-time jobs just uh, playing Axie Infinity and, and selling you know what they produce in there. I did a bunch of research last week preparing to play last weekend. I uh, figured out like how I was going to build my team and all this and invest. And then I went to actually start playing. And basically, the, the floor to entry, if I wanted to be a serious, like have a serious run at this, I basically have to spend about $1,500 before I could even start playing. And I did it. <laughs> Props, because you probably you'll, you'll probably come out on the right the right side of it. Um, but uh, the the reason that I thought it was relevant to this is unlike some of these other um, uh, blockchain apps, you can actually play Axie Infinity on iOS and Android. You just have to do it in a roundabout way, like on iOS, it's through uh, test flight. Um, so it's really interesting to see. And I know we touched on some of this earlier. I like, is there going to be a way that these apps can edge into the iOS and Android ecosystem. Um, since we're short on time, maybe we can just give thoughts on on that. Or are they just going to be this like weird offspring that's off to the side that like you kind of have to do some hack to play on mobile? It's got to happen eventually, right? But Apple's yeah. going to hate it. Google's yeah. Gonna- I mean, Apple just is going to is going to figure out their way that they're going to do this. You know, and they will have their way of doing it and their rules around it. Um, and you know, but I do think it's inevitable. It's there's an inevitability to the the like web three ecosystem in general. So, you know, so, so Andrew, you're, you're further off than people think in terms of, you know, people are, are so bad at time horizons. Right. I was actually pretty good on the, on the time horizon for an Axie to show up. Um, but, uh, and even for, for a top shot to show up. Um, but I think it was cause I was in it earlier yeah. and a little deeper. 
Well, the other interesting thing is like, can someone build the pipes that make this easy for someone else to do? And that's like a possibly another huge opportunity is like, can I make a blockchain game without having to build my own blockchain? And that'll be a, ben, you know. We, we got to have you back for a whole nother episode, I think on this topic, Andrew, because I think we could go super deep, but um, we're definitely at time for today. And Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to uh, reach out to learn more about the services that Stillfront Group can provide, uh, what's the best way to learn more? Oh yeah, yeah. Hit up, please hit up. You know, hit hit up the website. Hit me up at farming underscore xp on Twitter. Um, you know, Stillfront as well is on on Twitter. Um, and um, you know, we are we're we're all always happy to kind of talk and and you know, you know, meet meet more devs as well. So definitely get in touch. Awesome, uh, Morin. Do you want to take us out? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you, Andrew, so much for hanging out today. This was super fun. Uh, today, as always, the podcast was brought to you by the folks at Uptick. So here at Uptick, we provide uh, full stack services for growth marketing and tools for different types of marketing automation. Um, if you have a great game, but just don't know how to scale it, uh, definitely reach out to us. We love to talk. We dish out a lot of uh, free advice. Uh, so you can learn more about the team uh, at uptick.com. That's U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Awesome. Talk soon.